I didn't want to test Juanita's improvisation skills if I forgot a whole segment, so <laughs> tempted to forget the sermon part. <laughs> it wasn't improvised. So anyway, good morning, guys. I'm glad and encouraged that you're here this morning, and just so you know, Jim will be back. So if you're nervous or you kind of feel iffy about the sermon this morning, come back next week. It'll be way better. So... <laughs> For the past two Sundays, we have been talking about what? It's on the screen. We've been talking about hope. JT talked about it. We have hope in a Savior, the light of the world, like Anna talked about. And Jim has done an excellent job showing us of how vastly different the definitions are of our worldly hope compared to our Christian faith hope. Our worldly hope is like a piece of twine. It's weak. There's more doubt in it than anything else. You don't know if it's going to lift a cinder block or not. Christian faith hope is a tow rope. You have no doubt that this is going to lift it. So you know that our hope is different from the world. When Jesus is talking about he's the savior of the world, which we will be talking about today, is hope in a savior. So today, when we're talking about our souls and hope in a savior, I remember what an old preacher said. He said, do you remember, if God needed in a, someone to count people and categorize them, he would have sent an accountant. If he needed help with people's sickness and ridding disease, he would have sent a doctor. If he needed help with his appeal against Satan's influence in our culture and world, he would have sent a lawyer. If he would have needed help feeding people, he would have sent a farmer. But he needed someone to save people. So he sent a Savior. And as we have gone from hope in God to hope in a Messiah, to now hope in a Savior, and then next week hope in a baby, trying to explain how God works to not only provide for his children, but to become closer. Remember, the whole story starts in Genesis that God is with his people, that he is walking right beside Adam and Eve. And then, remember during the Exodus, God is leading his people by cloud or a pillar of fire by night, and he is feeding his people. And then we get to the Davidic rule, or when the judges are the, ki- are the period of kings, where God is fighting battles for his people. Well, sometimes, and we'll talk about that today. And when his son comes, he once again walks with his children, the celebration of Christmas, the meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. So when we are talking about hoping in a Savior this morning, we at least want to know who exactly we're hoping in, and who is our Savior, and why should we hope in him. A little boy during Sunday school, this didn't happen this morning, but somewhere, was caught doodling during the lesson, and the teacher stopped and asked, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher kind of paused and was like, well, son, no one knows what God looks like. And the ornery little guy was like, kind of smirked, and he's like, well, they will when I get done. <laughs> we, we may not know what God looks like. He probably looks like everyone. Remember, we're all made in God's image. But the Bible does tell us who God is. And in Psalm 89, that's what we'll be looking at today, Ethan the Ezraite writes about exactly that, the amazing qualities of God, using words to draw and describe who God is. Then he writes about God's promise. And then he cries. This psalm is in three stages. The qualities of God, what God has promised, and boy God, where are you at? And the, and the biblical term for that last portion is he laments. Ethan praises a great God, such as in verses 1. 
I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then, just taking a few verses that kind of cover the second section, then he talks about God who has promised to make David's kingship eternal. Remember, this psalmist has no idea Jesus is coming down the pike. Or if he does, Jesus has not came. So we read it with the lens of knowing it was, Matthew says this, it's through David's line that Jesus comes. That is an eternal king. The psalmist is like, okay, you said David's line is going to be eternal, but it looks like everything's going into chaos because they're about to be ransacked by Babylonia and by Babylon and then be put into exile. So, verses 2 through 4, For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This psalmist is thinking David's line. He's thinking of kings. He doesn't know yet, like we're seeing, of Jesus. And now, our great God has now seemingly turned his back. And that's in chapter 89, 38 through 39. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. To sum up the chapter, in a sentence, the psalmist is asking, You promised so much. What about it, Lord? Have you ever wondered how surely committing my life to God would help me understand, would alleviate some pressure, would surely provide some peace. But what about all that, God, huh? I'm being good, I'm doing good, and you're still, my life's still the same. This psalmist is actually kind of interesting reading. When you read the whole chapter of 89, this psalm is almost as if a little kid during Sunday school would come up to one of you guys, just honest and kind and questioning, like he would ask a parent, why, why did you do that? In this case, the psalmist kind of states exactly why God has chosen to give Judah to his enemies. This psalm is more than likely written at the cusp of when Judah is about to be exiled in captivity. In Psalm 89, 30-31, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. To sum it up, they sin. And it has left the writer of this psalm confused and arguing with God. Judah feels rejected, the covenant renounced, the crown defiled, Jerusalem plundered, David's current descendant is humiliated. How, God, are you going to deliver? How is this promise is going to be true? You promised a Savior, and we don't see anything but chaos. All has turned sour. God, have you broken your sworn word? We thought you were going to save us. If your hope isn't in God, if it's not anchored, remember Jim talked about how putting an anchor on the first Christian tombs, if it is not anchored, do you feel like this psalmist? Lord, you are great. Lord, you have promised, but God, I don't understand. Maybe that's what you feel, and I can kindly suggest looking here. How's your walk? May I be super, super gentle? And ask the question, 
What about sin? Maybe it would help if I give you a reason and an example. First, the reason is church a place to feel good or a body to exalt Jesus. If your answer is to exalt Jesus as the head of this body, then how do we exalt him? By the purity of one's life. Our best testimony, like JT was talking this morning, is our legacy. How do you live your life? That's how you exalt and glorify and worship your Lord, which is the giving up of one's former ways. You are given a new life. Don't turn back to sin. Second, an embarrassing example. I worked at the lumberyard in Cracksonville a few years ago, and one of my jobs was putting away lumber. So taking apart a whole unit of like two-by-fours, like 294 pieces in them, and then either separating it for an order or putting some in stock. But usually I was always in a hurry, so before the end of the day came, I had all this wood to put back away. But I didn't have time, or didn't want to take the time, to take five minutes to strap the unit back together, to put bands to make sure this whole unit would be one unit on the forks. Instead, I would play the fun game of having like 2,000-pound Jenga tower on the forks and trying to balance it for a block and a half to put it back where I got it from. Long story short, there's three turns involved. Usually the first turn, no problem. Second turn, a little too fast, centrifugal force comes into play. It wants to swing off. Third turn, you go off of the pavement onto the gravel path that's like full of ruts or it's muddy. And during that last turn, then you could set it down. But if you hit any other unit or you hit an unexpected bump, bing, bam, boom, it's a mess. You got hundreds of boards to clean up before the end of the day. My, my like mature response is to harpoon a two by four as far as I can. Maybe like two or three of them. So, what's wrong with that situation? Yes, I didn't handle it well when I threw a board or two, but I didn't handle it well when I decided not to ban. When some may argue, when I wasn't committed enough to do the whole job. You see, when you were talking about our faith, I'm reminded that anyone is welcome to the church. I mean, look at this. We all made it this morning. We're in here. No one's judging us. We are all here. But Jesus doesn't want your life to be the same. He doesn't want you to be the servant of your old ways. We talked about the disciples this morning in church. You could bet their lives changed. He came. He even died so you could have a new life. Are you committed Or are you frustrated because it seems like just when all the pieces of your life are in perfect balance, there's always something that knocks everything over? Could it be, could it be, guys, sin? And if I go back to Jesus' own words on the Sermon on the Mount, he reminded me that anger is equivalent to murder. I wonder what he meant by that, and maybe it's all sin is detested by God. We had a professor in college who talked about, to illustrate this, how even just a little sin can affect the whole bunch. He's like, so what if I came and I brought brownies for you guys to all to eat, you all take a slice, and at the end you say that you had a mouse in your drawer, it got into the brownie mix, you saw just like a few mouse-like scrappings in the brownie mix, but I just made it anyway. Would you be like, ah, yeah, you're fine. Some of us actually might say that, but most people would be like, no, we're not fine. A little bit of sin, guys, can ruin the whole thing. 
The whole thing. And I need to remember like, dang, I guess that I need God's grace. And should ask myself the question, am I willing to let go of my old ways? Say, yes, I need a Savior. Paul talks about how we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That we literally were living dead lives. Paul describes what a life is like without Jesus. And after he says that, he goes to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved. You have been saved. And this is not for your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ. Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If your goal in life is to be good and your scale is to compare yourself to others, that is very, let me say, Not good. Our salvation is given by God. It's not taken or even deserved by man. Believing in a Savior, a hope in a Savior, results in wanting to serve. Because here's the honest truth. There are people, we can all think of somebody who does good. There are philanthropists that do good, yet deny the existence of Jesus. But they do good. Do they have salvation? Do they know the Savior? What about the man who has spent the majority of his life in the rut and comes to know Christ somehow, in some way, and realizes the richness of the graces of God and is now propelled into doing good works, not so he can boast, not so he can take a scorecard to heaven and be like, oh God, I deserve to be in here. No, but because he has hope in a Savior. That is almost the story of Paul. Our culture says right now that what you feel is right. We are in an environment that has grown comfortable with sin. That is a lie. That is a lie. It's not true. Wonder why our fellow Americans are struggling with suicide or shootings or identity? Because our culture is wrong. What you feel at times is not right. What you, the results are terrible because sin is never just private. No, how, no matter how small you think your sin is, sin is corporate. It affects everybody. Feelings at times are not right. God's grace, please hear me say this, God's grace can cover sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. But if you don't think you need a Savior, if you are not willing to admit that you are in need of God's grace and willing to leave behind the sins that you have grown comfortable with, then what do you make of Jesus on the cross? A good reminder for me is I, cannot, I can possibly not sacrifice more than what Jesus sacrificed for me. I had a friend who would say, if only people knew how much I filtered talking about the purity of his speech, yet some people would still admonish him and be like, yo, you need to clean it up. I almost said his name. <laughs> but, yo, you need to clean it up. He would say, he'd say, Jimmy, if they just knew how much I filtered. And it's, it's not the point. Are you willing to let go? If you asked me, you'd be like, Jimmy, are you willing to let go of your temper? And I would be like, yes, thank goodness God's graceful. Are you guys, are you guys, are you willing to let go of whatever it is? Scrolling, rambling, nagging, 
gossip. Remembering that not only does God's grace have you covered, but it's also worth it. It's worth the change. Hope in a Savior. Who can save? Not a wish in self-religion of this will make me feel better. Because that is a lie. This is why I like reading the Psalms. They're so honest about God, but they also have feeling. The psalmist knows God is just. He knows he is righteous. And you can almost read that he knows why the nation of Judah is in chaos, in the current chaotic state, not because of God, but because of sin. Psalm 89, 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Were you once lost, and now I'm found. And remember exactly, and some of you guys, I know you do, you remember exactly why you follow Jesus. And you're in need of an ever-graceful, hope-anchored Savior. Do you need to ask God that you may see yourself as He sees you? First thing that you may want to know is He loves you. He's going to be with you the whole time. He will never turn His back on you. He wants you to be with Him. And He's a patient God. And is the Holy Spirit also nudging you because the cross means something? It wasn't the death place of God because we don't also need to make a sacrifice. Because we do. But guys, it's not giving up. It's not giving up as much as you may think. For the worse, it's giving up everything for the better. And it's not to, and it's to know freedom. Not bondage. As you walk, you may be asked to sacrifice more pleasantries, but the first step is simply to be free. The psalmist in Psalm 89 knows that God is salvation, but is asking God, why is the sinning nation of Judah in turmoil? Answer being within the question. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What type of hope? Trustful expectation. A hope that is without doubt. In Romans, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles. Two groups of people who had no reason to be with one another, let alone like each other. It would be as if we heard on the news this afternoon that Iowa and Nebraska decided to merge universities. They decided to consolidate, and they were going to go under one name, the Huskies. I mean, there's, there'd be National Guards called in. Like, there'd be fights in church. Like, this is who Paul is writing Romans to. He is writing to Jews and Gentiles. And he is saying in this section from chapter 14 to chapter 15, verse 13, to where we're at, to accept one another. Accept one another. And luckily, we're called Christians. It's written to Christians and not Jews and Gentiles, which could be Jew-tiles. So I'm glad we're called Christians. And even Paul is saying in this section, Jews, I know that you had your law. You're used to the rigmarole of rules and your very particular lifestyle of dietary restrictions, of circumcision, and so much more. But you are free. Christ has fulfilled the law. He wants you to be holy, to act as He did. Not check boxes. Do you have a legalistic tendency? 
Do you check boxes? Do you judge people who are new to Christ and you're judging them and checking boxes for them? Don't do that. Your soul yearns for freedom. They yearn for freedom. You are united under Christ for a true hope and a true Savior. And Paul is talking to the Jews not to have an excuse to judge them, but so they may have the knowledge not to judge, but to encourage the Gentiles who are brand new to walking with God. Jesus is the perfect example of what he asks of us. Remember, they blamed him for being a drunkard and a sinner because of who he hung out with. Who else could have abused his position more than God? Who could have pleased himself more than God himself on earth? Jesus. Yet he always put others first. He put others ahead of his own. Mark 10.45 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave up what he easily could have claimed. He left the hails of glory for the nails of Calvary. If God can let go of his attributes for you, can I, can you let go of sin? What are you thinking of right now when you hear the word sin? in your life. Can you let go of that? Are you in need of a daily Savior? Of a great Savior? He loves you. God's grace has you covered. Or do you just come to church to be good? On October 8, 1871, a fire broke out in one of the largest cities in the United States. The fire was said to have started in a barn on the southwest side of the city. The fire quickly spread. The dry weather, the abundance of wooden buildings and wooden walkways only provided the perfect ingredients for the fire to rage. The fire, which claimed over 300 lives, destroyed over 17,000 buildings, decimated over three square miles of the city, and left around 100,000 people homeless, was named the Great Chicago Fire. The night the fire started, evangelist D.L. Moody said that was the night of his greatest mistake. He addressed one of the largest crowds of his career in Chicago. His message was about the Lord's trial and was based upon Pilate's question, Matthew 27, 22, What shall I do then with Jesus? As Moody concluded, he said, I wish you would seriously consider the subject. For next Sunday, we will speak about the cross. And I, at that time, will inquire, what will you do with Jesus? And Ira Sankey then sang the closing hymn, which included the lines, Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls and death is nigh. But the hymn was never finished. For while Sankey was singing, there was the rush and roar of fire engines on the street outside where men and women started to fight the fire that would not completely end for another two days and almost destroyed the whole city. And before the next day, most of Chicago lie in ashes. And Moody said, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think of their salvation. The preacher that I quoted earlier, he said, if you do not know where you are going after this life, it's not safe for you to walk out these doors. Where's your hope, guys? We know that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. This congregation has literally recently felt that, experienced that. How are you doing with your faith? 
We did this a few Sundays ago. The kids have memorized John 14, 6. So guys, if you were in Sunday school and you know John 14, 6, I'll help you. But you ready? Okay, loud voices, maybe. Hopefully there's a handful. Actually, half of Sunday school left this morning, so it might just be me. But, all right, so John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And no one comes through the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the early church was simply known as the way, but it's exclusive. Jesus is, in fact, the only way. Jesus is the truth, opposite of the one who wants you to sin. He wants you to be comfortable with just that little bit of sin. The father of lies, Satan. In contrast, Jesus is who? He's the truth. He is the one who stands out in the dark. He is the one who, by His grace, has provided us salvation. He is the light of the world, so that in the darkness we can see Him. And lastly, there's no other way. There is no way to get to the Father except through Jesus, and there is no hope unless you are willing to follow Jesus. Leave that sin. Let it die with your old ways and hope in a Savior. Let's end with prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. God, I really do ask that, Holy Spirit, please convict us, but at the same time, God, please let us have the knowledge that you are a graceful God. You have us covered. We know that we don't have to try to keep appeasing you. We know we just simply got to trust in Jesus, try to reflect his life. God, please don't let anyone in here feel like they're just so burdened with shame. God, I ask that you relieve that, that people know they got a second chance, that there's, oh, this church is filled with second and third and fourth chances. And Lord, that we have a chance to have a hope this Christmas in not just a thing, and not just like a piece of twine, but like a rope. We know without a doubt we have a hope in a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>